New year, new series, guys. I'm excited. Uh, Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 3. And this is what the word of God says. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. So today, uh, I want to talk to you uh, about your resolve to pray and what's at stake if we do not develop our praying life. And you might be thinking to yourself right now, like, whoa, dude, like coming out with like a really bold challenge right out of the gate, like at least butter me up with a joke first. Uh, but, you know, we've got babies to, deli- to, to, to dedicate and the Lord's table to, se- uh, to celebrate. So there's no time to waste. We're just going to get straight into it today. I remember uh, when I was around 20 years old, myself and a group of friends we went back, backpacking in the Three Sisters Wilderness area. At the time, I was living in the Portland area where I grew up, uh, but we went go, to go backpacking with a group of about five to six of us, and we took with us a mountain man, a good friend and mentor, a guy by the name of Stan. And he's a lot like Rich Travis, if you know Rich. Just like, he's, his, like his like real habitat is out in the wild. And at the time, he was probably close to 60 years old, and he had spent his entire life in the woods, backpacking and climbing and doing all kinds of really adventurous things. And he was such an incredible hang, so much fun. And so we had planned this really rigorous backpacking trip. We had planned to hit a few peaks. Uh, We wanted to hit Middle Sister and South Sister. And so uh, we were, you know, on our way out. And we thought that since he was almost 60, that Stan would be like dragging behind us. But it was exactly the opposite. All of us really fit early 20-year-olds were just like dragging behind him. And it was pretty, pretty incredible. So anyways, along the way, the weather starts to get pretty bad. And we were getting rained out, sideways rain and all kinds of inclement weather. And the slog just went on and on and on. And we ended up arriving to our base camp a lot later than we thought we would, totally drenched, uh, completely wet, and really, really tired. So I remember the group of us, this uh, younger group of us, as soon as we got to camp, we had been talking all the way. We're going to like try and build a fire once we get there, warm up our hands, get dried out so that we can hopefully get some rest and hit the day tomorrow. And so as soon as we got to our campsite, we dropped all of our backpacking gear and we just kind of scattered into all of the you know, brush around us to find anything that was remotely close to being dry. And we found like moss hanging up on trees and broke little twigs. And then we came back to the fire ring and we got out our lighters and we're trying to light this really soggy wet material. And it was, we went on and on and on. So we got a little bit of smoke and then we you know, got down on our faces and tried to like blow into the smoke to create fire. And this saga went on for, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. 
And Stan, this whole time, none of us noticed he was doing absolutely nothing. He had pulled out some trail mix, sitting on a log, and he's just kind of chomping on his stuff, getting a kick out of us, unable to start a fire. Until finally, as we're like starting to get worn out and really deflated about uh, not being able to make fire, I'll never forget what he says. He looks up at all of us, and he goes, hey, you boys want fire? (laughs) Such a condescending tone. He's like... You boys on fire? And we're like, yeah, of course. And so he reaches into his, his bag, pulls out his camp stove and a canister of white gas, screws it on, starts his, his camp stove, which is meant to cook food, but if you point it in any direction you want, all of a sudden it's just a torch. And that's exactly what he did, is he took his camp stove that he turned into a torch and just shoved it into the big mass of you know twigs and everything else that we had compiled there in the fire ring and within 15 seconds we had a roaring fire by which to dry ourselves and to warm it was just like to this day it is one of the most formative experiences I had in the wild and with my buddy Stan so the irony and the point of that story is that all of us were carrying stoves all of us had canisters of white gas But we weren't using them, and we weren't aware of their power to start a fire in the wet. We needed someone who was more experienced than us, wiser than us, who'd been in way worse situations than the one that we found ourselves in, to show us how to overcome those wet conditions. And I believe we're living in a time of history where the cultural conditions are way too soggy and wet, that you cannot start a fire with traditional methods of evangelism and church planting. The cultural tides are powerful. The algorithms, billions of dollars in ad revenues, uh, all of Hollywood, the rival secular gospels that we are being sold are so, so powerful. And you and I, we cannot overcome all of that with just an impressive Sunday experience. The only thing that can overcome the soggy, wet conditions of our cultural climate is the power of the presence of God cultivated by a praying community who is consecrated to him. The power of the presence of God cultivated by a praying community who is consecrated to God. Let me back up what I'm saying with a really important scripture from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. It says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Love this passage of scripture. I believe a good translation of this is you have no idea the blessing and redeeming power of God that will come to you when you humble yourself, pray, seek God's face, and turn from sin. But what I hear when I read that scripture is just my buddy Stan saying, hey, you boys want fire? Do you want fire? And that's the invitation that I want to take the next several weeks to explore with you. Think about that situation, the metaphor of the story I just told you with the culture of prayer in our church. I think this, like, the reality is like this whole time we have been carrying around in our backpack the possibility or the potential 
of great spiritual blessing and life-transforming power by the Spirit. But perhaps for some of us, instead, we've been spending our time trying to generate sparks in our own strength and whip something up with breath from our own lungs when we could have been relying on fire from heaven and the breath of God. And the invitation of the 21st century church is to press into the presence of God with fervor and tenacity. So the people who understood this concept best, I think, are the 12 apostles. Twelve apostles, they witnessed Jesus' public authority. They witnessed his ability to inspire and to mobilize a big crowd of people. He was taking Israel by storm. And yet, catch this, the apostles never asked Jesus to teach us to preach. They asked him, teach us to pray. Why? Because they understood that the secret of, to the power of Jesus' ministry was a private life of prayer and communion with the Father. So if we want to see Ben transformed by the gospel of Jesus, then we need to be asking the right questions, and we need to be devoting ourselves to a life of cultivating an inner life of prayer. And I think the best model of this that we have, besides the Lord's Prayer from the Scriptures, is actually Paul's writings in the New Testament church. So uh, many of you probably already know that Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote uh, 13 or more letters uh, to the first century church uh, that wound up in the library of Scripture. And he wrote for a variety of different reasons, but mainly he is resolving all kinds of problems and issues that were facing the church. Things like persecution and disunity and false teachers and immorality and failed leaders and sexism and racism and discrimination. And the list just goes on and on and on. And so Paul's pattern is to write these letters, and he does first, he instructs them in godliness, and then secondly, he prays it in. So the New Testament is filled with these letters from Paul and his apostolic prayers over the earliest churches, and they're extremely insightful. So over the next seven weeks, what we're going to be doing is just studying the prayer ministry of Paul in the series that we're calling A Fellowship of Burning Hearts. And... Um, I'm, it starts right now. I'm so pumped for this. And you could, be, uh, you could hear these teachings, and they could just be like pretty decent biblical sermons for you to like, learn a few new things that you didn't already know and maybe have a slightly more, uh, more appreciation for the beauty of God's heart towards you. Or it could also completely transform the way that you commune with God because the potential that these passages from Scripture are demonstrating to you are indescribably good. And it's my life's obsession to pass on to you how you can enjoy God through prayer. So again, I ask you the question that I think it all comes down to, do you want fire? Do you want to experience him in that kind of way. So the idea behind a fellowship of burning hearts is that if we have a committed core of people who say, yes, we do, yes, we do, then what could God do with that? Maybe this group of people and this little chapel becomes a furnace for the next great awakening on the West Coast. 
And I see there's no visions of grandeur whatsoever. It's just simply out of a heart to see God move with power in our city. Whether we are forgettable or memorable means nothing to me. All I care about is seeing the power of God moving in our time and in our city. So without further ado, here we go. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16. This is what the scripture says. This is one of Paul's writings, one of Paul's prayers to the church. He says this, I pray out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit. So just a couple of quick things to notice here. Number one, God owns all the treasures of heaven. In fact, the scripture earlier in this same letter talks about uh, the, the storehouses of God being like a treasury, being like Fort Knox. And in this sort of heavenly Fort Knox is all of the storehouses of God's love and mercy and grace. See, God owns everything uh, in heaven and on earth. And the reality is that he is the one who holds all of that in his hands. And the scripture says a man receives nothing unless it's been given to him by the Father in heaven. And so Paul is praying, and I think the invitation is for you and I to pray with a holy confidence that God wants to lavish his church with everything that we need to flourish and advance his kingdom. And this is... Um, this is a, that word lavish is a, is a word that we find also earlier in Ephesians. It's this idea of being like freely bestowed upon and poured out. It, this is what God wants to do. He wants to pour out onto his church everything that we need in order to thrive and advance his kingdom. Now, I, I know that how some of us are, tend to hear verses like this, and we get a little bit of angst in our heart when we hear scriptures like this because Scriptures like this have been co-opted by the prosperity gospel and what I would just argue is a lot of bad theology. See, Paul does not mean that he wants his preachers to be wearing $1,000 sneakers and driving to church in Range Rovers, okay? It's like not the idea. Um, Paul was, at the time that he wrote this, talking about the storehouses of God being emptied for your uh, benefit and for your blessing. He was living in prison under the poverty line, in house, under house arrest. So uh, the, the, the thought of like co-opting these verses to be about some kind of prosperity gospel is just a complete farce. Living in luxury is the least imaginative way of reading this text and envisioning the treasures of heaven. And Paul is interested, and we need to be interested in something much more valuable than that. We are interested in God's strengthening you by the power of his Holy Spirit. If God's going to pour out anything from heaven, may it be God's Holy Spirit of power so that you are strengthened. That is the reality of this scripture. Then the very next phrase says this. You may be strengthened in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. So what is it that God wants to strengthen? It's the Greek phrase, ha eso anthropos, your inner man. And scholars believe that Paul's sort of riffing on Plato's conception of the man within 
The inner man is a mixture of three different things in that conception. It's your desire, the things that you long for. It's your emotions, the things that you feel. And it's your mind, the rational part of you that pursues knowledge and wisdom and constructs a worldview that you live by. And that is what Paul is saying God wants to strengthen, your inner man. One of my favorite scriptures of all time. It's becoming sort of a life verse for me. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16 says this, therefore we do not lose heart, that though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, meaning one day at a time. So our vision here at Riverbend has been for raising up resilient disciples in a secular era. And this is who we actually become as we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. It's to be resilient as disciples in a challenging era in which we're living in. And that phrase, in, it literally is into your inner being, which is to suggest that the power of the Holy Spirit is meant to penetrate to the deepest part of who you actually are at the core of your being. And some of you are familiar uh, or you know people who are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit in this way. And, you know, sometimes when we think about being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, we think a lot about like charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are also fantastic. Things like prophecy and speaking in tongues and miracles and all of those things which we believe in and we pursue here at Riverbend Church as a part of loving God with all of our heart as well as with all of our minds. But then there's also these people that you and I both know that have been walking with Jesus for such a long period of time that seem unflappable and unshakable in the face of adversity and hardship. One of uh, my friends, I'm so honored to know her, her name is Jan. She's a woman in her, like, probably early 60s. She's been walking with Jesus for many, many years. She provokes a lot of holy jealousy in me because I want to be her when I grow up. And she's this really tiny, petite, sweet lady with such a kind smile. Uh, But she is such a powerful human, like, such a powerful human. Because, and she has endured so much, and she has walked through so much, and she has so much just inner strength, and you can see it pouring out of her. And every time I'm with her, I'm just, I want to be you. Like, how do I be you? And if you ask her that question, she will give you the answer to that. She'll say, get up with me at 4 a.m., and we'll go seek God together. That's literally what she would tell you. And it's, she is such a powerful testimony. So there's people like that in this community that I think ought to provoke a holy jealousy, which is a, a phrase that I'm creating. It's nowhere in the Bible. But the idea of holy jealousy, just want to be clear about that. It's like, wait, does the Bible say it's okay to be jealous? Actually, no, it doesn't. But I think there is a version of what I'm going to call holy jealousy, which is looking at someone like my friend Jan who's able to walk through really incredible hardship, and yet within her you see this inner strength of being renewed day by day by Jesus. And if we're going to become a a generation and a church of resilient disciples, then we need to cultivate the kind of life that Jan has cultivated over the last 40 years. So how, or excuse me, why does God want to make you strong? I want to follow the logic of Paul's prayer here. So why is it that God wants to make you strong? Look at the next phrase. It says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So your inner man is is being strengthened so that you're actually able to contain the presence of God. That you are fortified within yourself, that you can actually contain 
a relationship and be the dwelling place of God. See, the mystery of the cross that we're told about in Colossians chapter 1 is that Christ is in you and he is the hope of glory. That's not abstract metaphor, that's concrete truth. We believe that the Spirit comes and indwells anyone who is in Christ. And Paul is saying, for you to be able to contain more of God's heart and love and passion, you need to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in order for that to take place. I love it. And how does it happen? It happens by faith, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. So the essence of this, or the activation of this for you and me, is our belief, our trust. So much of life in God is all about trusting that God wants to come close to you and connect with you. One scripture from Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 you're probably familiar with. It's often quoted to unbelievers, and it's a great verse uh, for anyone, obviously. But originally, Revelation 3 was actually written to the first century church. It was an appeal to the church to answer Jesus's pursuit of relational intimacy with you. He says, I stand at the door and I am knocking. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, lets me in, then I will come in and I will eat with him and he with me. That's the, env- that's the essence of the invitation of life with God and we pursue and cultivate that through our rhythms and our practices of prayer. Uh, It's one of the biggest tragedies, I think, that in the Western evangelical church that people have turned daily disciplines like prayer and scripture reading into a cliche to the point where I hear from many people like, what are you going to say? Just like pray and read your Bible, pray and read your Bible. And it's honestly how a lot of us feel. And I understand that that's been used as a cliche in a lot of different ways. But I just have to say from like a pastor and from my heart to you guys, I think it's a great shame. I think it's an embarrassment even to the Western church. It's the way that we have like turned up our noses at the treasures of heaven and then complained to God about the comforts of earth that we do not enjoy. I think it's an insult to Christ. I think it's a, an insult. It grieves his heart that we have left the glory of his presence on the table and instead have set our hearts on earthly things. I say that... Um, not in judgment or, or critique of anyone in this room. I just say it as a summary of what I have seen across my years in ministry, and I think it's a tragic, tragic thing. Jesus wants to make his abode with you. He went to the cross. He went to hell and back so that he could have this kind of re- relationship with you, so that he could take up residence in, you, in your heart. And what I want to say to the Western church is, do you see the great honor and the privilege that that is to simply be with and to commune with God? Sacrificing sleep, time for your hobbies from the cultural lens of central Oregon seems strange and fanatical, but from the lens of biblical promise, it's insane and foolish not to take Jesus up on his invitation to be with him and he with you. So what would it look like for us to not be continually putting off enjoying the power and the presence of God in your inner man? It's to lean into these prayers uh, from Paul. As we go along here, we're going to pray this through together in just a few moments. So he says, Christ is going to dwell in your hearts by faith. 
not an abstract metaphor. It's a promise that we get to live into. And then he says this, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. There's so much packed into that little phrase. He gives us two uh, metaphors, one agricultural and one architectural. The first one is of a tree deeply rooted in love, and the second is of a building that is built on the foundation or the stones, if you will, of love. So you are someone who is designed by God in order to be rooted in the soil of the love of Jesus and to be built on the foundation, the bedrock of the love of Christ. And the scripture is not is clear here, but it, it's, it's all over the place. For example, Colossians chapter 2 says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, then continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. So this is why, friends, that God is so determined to make his dwelling in you. Because like a tree and like a building, he has a plan. He's planning to reap a harvest. He's got a building that he is making for sacred purpose. And so this is this vision of like being it, 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 like uh, being dwelt by the presence of God and enjoying His presence. It is not a static vision. It is a dynamic vision that God wants to come and take up residence in you. And He's got a plan. He's got. Um, a harvest that he intends to reap, and he's got a sacred purpose in mind for you being rooted and founded in his love. So there, there's, there's that little piece of his logic. Now let's move on to the final, or second to last here. He says, I want you guys to have power, being rooted and grounded in love, I want you to have power so that you may be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. He says, I want you to encounter the four-dimensional love of Christ. Four-dimensional love of Christ. Which, again, was meant to be like wordplay and challenge the way that you are able to see the love of Christ. That it's not just two-dimensional or three-dimensional. It's four-dimensional. There is so much to the love of Christ for us to grasp. That first thing is to grasp. You need to, you need, by the way, you need power from the Holy Spirit in order to grasp it. But the point is to grasp means to like understand this really big, marvelous concept. Just taking it all in and being able to describe it. I love to describe the love of Jesus like the universe. It's like when we look out at the night sky and see the Milky Way and see shooting stars and see all of the beauty that's out there, we can begin to get our heads around it. But the more we dig into like astrophysics and the photos that are coming back from the like high tech uh, telescopes and everything else, the more we're like, wow, there is so much more to the night sky than even meets the eye. And what God is saying is that he wants to strengthen you with power, give you revelation so that you could grasp just how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So he says that, but he also says, I want you to know, I want you to grasp and I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So you have to grasp it, but he's saying, I want you to encounter and I want you to experience the love of Christ. In other words, this is not just something that you read or think about. This is something that lives in you. It 
and that you experience. Now, a, a good, I think, simple example to correlate this to is before I was married to Grace, I could have told you, I could have explained to you what I think real love is. And I'll give you that real love can be hard to define and to describe, but you can definitely do it. But before marrying Grace, I would have been telling you about real love from knowledge, under, like understanding things I've been able to put together from either my readings from the scripture or just like living in this world. But now that I am married to Grace, I can say that I'm living in the joy of experiencing real love. It's something that I have, and it's something that has me. And we have far from a perfect marriage, mostly due to, to my inadequacies. Uh, but we definitely know that we love one another and the love that we have for each other. The invitation of this scripture is that you would be enraptured by and that you would experience and that you would know the four-dimensional, like, surpassing knowledge love of God. And, and I say that to simply, again, ask you the same similar question. Is that something that you want? Do you want to know and experience the love of Christ in that way? And we're, of course, we're all on a journey, right? Like many of us have like, come to faith in Christ. Maybe recently we're like, like opened up to the wonder and the glory of it all. And then there's others of us who've been walking faithfully with Jesus for the last 10, 20 years. The love that we experienced from him feels very different than it did in our early days. But the question is, do you want that? A uh, pastor out of New York has uh, gone on the record saying that God comes where he's wanted. And we just have to be able to say, we want you here. And we need to mean that from the heart. So do you want to know love Christ? Um, you know, one of the things that uh, in my years pastoring I've noticed, uh, there are, we would, most of us, if not all of us, would say, yeah, yeah, I want to know the love of Christ. But for many of us, there's hangups and there's reasons why it feels like there's a block between us being, or an obstacle, between us being able to encounter the love of Jesus. And in, in, in my history, this is um, just my sort of anecdotal experience, that there are generally about four things, four reasons why that might be, that you would have an obstacle to being able to experience the love of Jesus. The first one is lies. Lies that we believe about ourselves, or lies that we believe about God. Um, and those things can inhibit or keep us from being able to experience the love of Christ. Second thing to that could be unbelief. Just simply like, yeah, I know God said he wants to love all people, but he doesn't probably mean me. And so there's like this, there's this root of unbelief in us. That's not something to criticize or judge yourself for, but to just notice and pray like the, the man prayed to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So lies, unbelief, sin, just like patterns, habits of sin that we go, they go unconfessed and we're not really properly dealing with. Or finally, unforgiveness. There's some kind of unforgiveness. Maybe we're not forgiving ourselves. Maybe we're not forgiving someone in our life. And for those reasons, we're, we're told in Isaiah and in First Peter that that inhibits our prayers. It inhibits our connection 
to the Lord Jesus. And so through pastoral direction and you know, going, going back in our history a little bit, we can kind of look into those four areas, so those four obstacles to being able to encounter the love of Jesus. And then as we deal with those things, then uh, in my experience, we're able to kind of remove all of those boundaries and those blocks, and we get to actually instead encounter the love of Jesus. So do you want to know the love of Jesus like that? It's the most compelling thing that I've encountered on this earth, and the invitation is for you to jump in as well. So, and then this is the, the final line. This is how we end in verse 19. It says, So that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. So that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. Here's what I just want us to notice here Paul knows how to pray, he knows how to pray with boldness and specificity. He's saying, Jesus, I'm asking you to make these people filled up with everything about you that they can possibly handle. God, what you have started, I ask that you wouldn't stop and that you would finish and that you would complete. I want these people complete. I want these people mature. I want these people fully formed in you, Lord Jesus. So keep lavishing them with your love until you call them home. This is the attitude and the ethos and the prayer life and ministry of Paul. He is praying with boldness and specificity that you would be filled up with the fullness of God. Now, we don't have time to get into all of this right now, but in Ephesus, Paul knows, it's clear, that he's dealing with contested space. There are spiritual forces of darkness that are pushing back against the movement of God. And listen, we're living in contested space too. But Paul is very persistent. He's praying these things again and again. Elsewhere in Paul's writings, you hear him say, since I have started or since I have heard of it, I have not stopped praying this for you. And that's necessary because we're living in this contested space where the enemy wants to get in the way of what God wants to do in your life. So we have to be persistent. And this is what Paul understands. So the reason why, you guys, I am so passionate about committing our church and you yourself committing yourself to a radical prayer life is because I am simply betting on the belief that the scriptures are true. And that by devoting yourself to prayer, it's just all about traveling deeper into the love of God that surpasses knowledge. And that my hope is throughout your life, you might not just be able to grasp, but that you would be able to intimately know and experience his love. And I'm also betting that there is nothing else on earth that compares to that. I'm almost 20 years in at this point to my life with Jesus, and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface, but the deeper that I travel into his love, the more I'm convinced that everything else in the world pales in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus and knowing his love for me. And I want to take it another step further. I would actually say that I believe that when the love of Jesus is set ablaze in you and me, it just has to spread. That the love of Christ will be poured out through you into all of the world. I end with this. One of my favorite uh, authors of the 20th century is a pastor that most of us have never heard of. He's a man by the name of Leonard Ravenhill. 
He's a British theologian who moved to Texas after World War II, and he started preaching and training young pastors. Little bit of church history points is that he actually became a mentor to Keith Green and A.W. Tozer, both of whom went on to be really, really powerful voices in the late 20th century. More than Ravenhill actually did. They became more well-known, but both of them, both A.W. Tozer and Keith Green, both credited Ravenhill for deeply influencing their life with God. And right in a time when churches in the Bible Belt, they were in Texas in the Bible Belt in the 1940s and 50s and early 60s, and in the Bible Belt at the time, the church seemed to be thriving. There were huge, and I mean huge numbers of people coming to church every single Sunday, giving tons of money. So in many ways, this is seen by church historians as a golden era of church in the West. But Ravenhill had a much different take. He wasn't fooled by all of the fanfare and the immense resources of the Christian institution of the South. And he continued to see the things like secularism in the form of sexual immorality and the rise of communism and continued segregation of black and white Americans as really huge problems in Western society. And he was of the opinion that most of the church was just flat out ignoring that and instead coming to church and tickling their own ears, telling each other what they wanted to hear. And so he wrote this book in 1961, this insanely prophetic book called Why Revival Tarries. And you, it, like, if you're going to read one book in January, read this book. It's so good. Well, I really like it. I don't know if you'll like it. I, I'm sure you'll like it. It's actually a really great read. And in it, in it he says this. You'll get a vibe. This is going to be the vibe of Ravenhill. You're going to get the vibe of Ravenhill right here. He says, the world hits the trail for hell with a speed that makes our fastest plane look like a tortoise. Yet, alas, few of us can remember the last time we missed our bed for a night of waiting upon God for a world-shaking revival. Our compassions are not moved. We mistake the scaffolding for the building. Present-day preaching with its pale interpretation of divine truths causes us to mistake action for unction, commotion for creation, and rattles for real revival. Prayer is to the believer what capital is to the businessman. In the matter of the New Testament, spirit-inspired, hell-shaking, world-breaking power never has been so much been left by so many to so few. For this kind of prayer, there is no substitute. We do it or we die. Now you guys see why I like this guy. I think he's incredible. Later in this same exact chapter, this is a shorter quote, he says this, the ugly fact. Again, talking about a church that in many ways, I mean, think of the 1950s, you know, and, and, and in Texas. This is the era that he's living in. And again, a lot of uh, you know, seminaries where I grew up going to these, these Christian schools and seminaries, they would point back to this same era as the golden age. And he's seeing something completely different. He's saying the ugly fact is that the altar fires are either burning out or burning very low. The prayer meeting is dead or dying. By our attitude to prayer, we tell God what has begun in the spirit, we're happy to finish in the flesh. So he writes this book, and he and his compatriots are like forging this really mighty uh, group praying community. 
And this book releases in 1962. All the while, he's like, he's raising up uh, like communities of prayer. And in 1967 and 1968, the Jesus movement breaks out. And you may be familiar with it. Actually, they did a movie last year. But back in the late 1960s on the west coast of the United States in a mostly hippie community in dead and dying churches, there was, a research, there was like a movement of God that broke out. And it was remarkable. Here you see just a photo of Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee, sort of the early leaders of the Calvary Chapel movement, which I was a part of in my early days, going down to the waters outside of Southern California and baptizing hundreds and thousands of people. And over a couple of years' time, thousands of churches uh, were planted up and down the West Coast. The entire worship music uh, industry and movement that we all celebrate today it has its origins in the Jesus movement. Before this, many people were still just singing primarily hymns, which I was just talking with Ryan earlier, that I think that there's actually a need for us to return to some of the hymns of the early 19th and 20th centuries. But the, the, the mu- all of like the Phil Wickhams of the world, and ev- all of this is coming out of the Maranatha worship culture that was formed in the late 1960s and early 1970s in the Jesus movement. It took the world by storm so much so that Time magazine put out this entire issue about this Jesus revolution. My dad came to faith in the Jesus movement. My mentor, Phil, is a part of our community here. He also was saved in the Jesus movement. And it started with a bunch of really humble people. If you read, uh, you know, um, Chuck Smith's biographies and the early history of the Calvary Chapel movement, man, this was a really, really simple and humble group of people who wanted fire. They wanted it. And they were foolish or wise enough, depending on how you look at it, to simply believe God and believe that God meant what he said when he said, Christ will dwell in your hearts by faith. They just believed it and they went after it. And I am just living in the, you know, 2023, you know, 50 50 years later, just going, it's time for another one. It's time for another Jesus movement. I don't want to spend the next 20 years up here complaining about how the internet is turning the next generation away from God's heart and towards self-worship and hedonism. It's what's happening. It's what will continue to happen if we do nothing. But does it have to? Does it have to? Are we just going to resign to the cultural conditions in which we live? Or are we going to push back against it? And are we going to keep on believing that the power and the love of God through prayer is greater than the power of evil and hell through the internet or any other created thing? And maybe, just, just maybe, instead of complaining about the decline of the church, maybe we can pray in and maybe we can be entrusted by God to steward another Jesus movement of sorts. The invitation is for you to join us. Join us in praying for spiritual awakening. Join our elders, join our staff team in praying in the love and the move of God. 
This has always been an urgent need in the church, all the way back to the first generation. I'm not going to say that things are completely different now, although a lot of things are different now. But every single generation of the church has had this earnest call to prayer. For example, Jude 1. Beloved, while I was diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. The urgent call continues to contend earnestly for the faith that was delivered to all the saints. And um, I've been leading in this church for a minute now, and I know that there are a lot of you here in the room who are just so on board with this. Last year we had our prayer room, 24-7 prayer room, and it went phenomenally well. A lot of you jumped in. And a lot of you, others of you are like ready. You're, you're like, you want a life that's transformed by prayer. You want to encounter the love of God. Not just talk about it, talk about the theory of it, read the books on it, but you want to encounter and experience the, the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that's like the universe, that the more that you contemplate and the more that you press in, the more marvelous and unending it appears to be. And you want to pray in the next Jesus movement. But I know that for many in the room, you may want that, but you don't want to mimic my intensity. And by that, I mean, you're like, dude, listen, like you belong in the jungle somewhere where like no one's ever heard of Jesus. And there's no microphones to amplify your voice because clearly you don't even need that. You know, that's, you don't get her vibe. Like I get the, the, the feeling a lot. It's like, bro, you don't get our vibe here in Bend. It's a chill vibe here. Like we're a refined chill. And I'm certainly not that. And so you want, you, 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 you want this life of prayer that I'm describing, uh, but you don't want to mimic my intensity. And, and the reality is, is that I don't want you to mimic my intensity either. Like, you, like it would be a massive, massive mistake if I or the team here was trying to convince or trying to turn people into other versions of me. I think that would be a bad idea. The, the goal of this ministry is that we all turn our hearts to Christ and we want to become, a, a, a term that I'm coining uh, is, we want to become contemplative revivalists. Contemplative revivalists. And what I mean by that is that we don't want a prayer culture that's dependent on revved up inspirational sermons. It's not, not a good way to do it. We want a prayer culture that's built on intentional practices that you and I sustain for a lifetime. And a contemplative is someone who practices things like solitude and silence and spiritual reading of scripture and various styles of prayer that we learn from the scriptures to connect with God. And it's the opposite of hyped. It's not hyped. It's just come as you are being present and becoming present to God himself. And our goal here at Riverbend is to lean into these kinds of rhythms over the life of our church. So that's what it means to be contemplative. What it means to be a revivalist is someone who just wants to see God awaken his church and wants to see the fame and glory of Jesus spread like wildfire in our time and in our region. And that's who we want to become. So we are putting those two things together, contemplative revivalists. We're putting that together in our prayer room. You heard me say uh, last week, if you were here, that this year, again, during the 40 days of Lent, we are going to be praying around the clock, 24-7, for 40 days straight for the kingdom of God to come and to break in. 
and we're doing that again. We have a, a completely uh, different uh, like invitation this year. We want you to sign up. We want you to spend several hours a week, if you can, in the prayer room, in the early mornings, late at night, all throughout your day. We want to invite you into our prayer room. We have got some different things that we're going to be sharing with you and inviting you into as you enter in. But this year, it's going to be February 14th through March 28th. That is Lent this year. And I just want to simply ask you again, is like, what do you want your commitments in the prayer room to be? What do you want your commitment in the prayer room to be? What do you want God to do in your life in the prayer room? Will you be like that early praying core, like Leonard Ravenhill and his little band of misfits in the Bible Belt, the 1950s and 60s? We're saying, yeah, there's a lot of like fanfare here, but what we really are after is the heart of Christ. Experiencing, knowing, grasping the love of Jesus and that that would spread to our world. That's what you are being invited into. So I end just with that question. Who wants it? Who wants fire? The invitation is to step in together. So will you please stand with me and let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you have traveled that whole distance from heaven to earth. And that through Jesus we experience forgiveness of sin, adoption into your family, victory over the kingdom of darkness. All these things have been freely given to us. And God, we want it. We want to encounter, we want to experience, we want to grasp, we want to know the height and depth, the length and width of your love for us, God. We don't want to talk about it as though it's this abstract idea. We want to talk about the love of, of Christ from intimate, real knowledge of truly knowing you. And so God, we decide here today that we want you. And we're turning away from the other things that are easily distracting and ensnaring us in the language of Hebrews. And we press on and we fix our eyes on you and you're the one that we're after. So God, we don't ask timidly or like you're not gonna fulfill what you promised. We ask boldly with specificity, God, would you fill us with all of the power of your spirit in our inner people, in our inner persons, so that we may be rooted and grounded in love that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith we may truly grasp and know the love of Jesus that surpasses understanding. But Lord, would you, as you fill us with your love, would it pour and spill out of us to the people around us? And would we, God, like be able to witness with our own eyes a similar move of your spirit, a new Jesus movement in the 21st century and on the West Coast? Not for our glory, we're happy to be forgotten in church history, we're happy to, to, to be small, but we want you, God, to be big. We want you, God, to be famous. We want you to be glorious, God. We want your love to spread in this region. We want Ben to be known as a place where your spirit's breaking out, the love of Jesus is being poured out, and the church is ablaze 
with the love of Jesus. So I pray over my friends, would you do it here? Would you do it with us? Would you start right now? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys, with that, we're coming to the tables of communion, and we're going to sing. So pour out your praise to Jesus and come to the tables.